Hi, you're listening to New Books in Intellectual History, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Quinn Slobodian about his brilliant new book called Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. It was published this year by Harvard University Press. The book traces a thread of neoliberalism from the ruins of the Habsburg Empire all the way to the 1990s debates about globalization. The Vienna and Geneva-based neoliberals that Slobodian tracks were not opposed to government, per se, but rather they opposed national governments. They sought to go beyond the nation-state and design supranational institutions and laws that would curtail the power of those nation-states. He shows how securing property rights against democratic majorities around the world became these neoliberals' political project. The book will be of interest to historians of ideas, global politics, and capitalism, along with anyone wanting a more precise idea of what neoliberalism has meant historically. I'm speaking to Quinn Slobodian about his really terrific new book called Globalists. Your book accomplishes so much and has 380 pages that I really had trouble figuring out how to squeeze all of its arguments into our discussion today. Uh, So I really want to thank you for writing the book and thank you for joining me. Yeah, I'm happy to be talking to you. So to start, how did you become a historian? Well, I entered college with the expectation that I was going to go to medical school, which is a Hmm. fantasy that was dispelled with my first chemistry class. And <laughs> instead, I took a class with a sort of a journeyman historian named Jeffrey Bale, who had also incidentally co-started the punk rock music fanzine Maximum Rock and Roll. Interesting. And was also, and was also a historian of political extremism. Um, so he was at Lewis and Clark College where I went to undergrad for the year and he taught a class on history of the French Revolution, which I loved. And I wrote a final paper about whether or not Babouf was being true to Jean-Jacques Rousseau called Babouf's Bastards. And I was just like hooked from that point on just sort of, you know, diving into the history of ideas and sort of testing them against developments in the present and tracing the way that they connected or didn't connect um, just became something that I intuitively loved to do. And, you know, my good fortune was to find a way to turn that into a career. Hmm. And this book explores the history of a collective of neoliberals largely based in Geneva. Uh, And it's a subject that sort of departs from your earlier work quite a bit. Uh, what brought you to the intellectual history of neoliberalism? Well, my first book, uh, which was called Foreign Front, Third World Politics in 60s West Germany, came out on Duke University Press in 2012, came out of my dissertation. And that one was really born out of a very specific moment, which was the beginning of the uh, the invasion of Iraq in, in 2003. I was part of the opposition to that war when I was living in New York, attending New York University. And part of the frustration, of of which there were many, about opposing that war, I felt, was that there wasn't a very textured or uh, deep sense of how one could act in solidarity with the people who were at the business end of the 
the bombs and the Bradley fighting vehicles. So how to actually be in solidarity with the Iraqi people. For some reason, that wasn't, that was hardly on the agenda, at least in the kind of anti-war movement as I saw it. There was much sort of appeal to liberal norms. There were appeals to uh, the better angels of American history and kind of ideas of universal humanity. But there wasn't much about, you know, what about the Iraqi individuals and their own politics? You know, how do we connect to that, if at all? And so in my sort of sense of (laughs) melancholy after the failed opposition to the war, I think I, like many other people, felt like it was it would might make sense to return to the history of the late '60s and '70s as a time where internationalism was much more consistent. It was on the agenda more. People were making much more radical moves and attempts to connect with people who were the you know the victims of of imperialism or new forms of military expansionism. So I went back to the to the West German 1960s and, and found a uh, surprising number of instances of people actually from Africa and Asia and Latin America in West Germany um, collaborating with young ethnic Germans and enlightening them about the conditions in their home countries, you know, getting them to sign on for their own projects that were not always revolutionary. Sometimes they were much more reformist. But it was it ended up being this real history of collaboration, which which hadn't really been documented, and which you know, although didn't sort of didn't sort of um, reverse the decision to invade Iraq, at least gave me a sense of of a kind of a historical precedent for how one could practice internationalism with with, with slightly more um, substance, uh, despite the shortfall the shortfall of and the shortcomings of the West German. New Left itself, it was still kind of an inspiring story for me. So that was a kind of a very specific political conjuncture. And um, even I was, as I was working on that, I was already working on this intellectual history of neoliberalism. So while I was in graduate school, I took part, for example, in the conference that then later produced the book, The Road from Montpellerin, um, mm. published or edited by Dieter Pleva and Philip Murawski. Uh, I was speaking actually for the person who was not able to be there uh, on the topic of German order liberalism. Interesting. Standing Interesting. in for yeah, I was standing in for Ralph Patak, sort of at the conference itself. So I was already interested in um, I was interested in the way that neoliberals very early on, already in the fifties and sixties, were posing a critique of modernization theory from the right. Um, at the time of, of being in grad school, there was a lot of sort of revisionist develop, histories of development already coming out from Arturo Escobar to Nils Gilman. Um, and the consensus there was always that there was something sort of reductive and ultimately, um, you know, damaging about modernization theory, uh, which was this idea, of course, that all of the countries in the world over time would sort of follow through a set series of transformations that would likely make them look like the United States. And at the end, the kind of high consumerist welfare telos for economic history. Um, And although I understood the reasons why people found that to be an offensive and uh, politically damaging way of 
understanding the world and history. I was still interested that it was interesting to me that there were Germans, Swiss neoliberals already in the 50s and 60s at the time of books like Walt Rostow's Stages of Growth, who were against modernization theory because they saw it as a kind of export of the demands of socialism, the demands of social democracy globally in a way that would ultimately um, corrode the world capitalist order. So it, it seemed to me important to sort of, to sort of insert a kind of a moment of pause there to say, you know, even as we are ransacking and critiquing modernization theory and running it to the ground, let's also think about um, who we are sort of unintentionally allying ourselves with. And, mm. and if we want to criticize that, then we can't just do the work of dismantlement, but we need to also be being clear about what the, the productive um, alternative is. So, so rediscovering this history of, of neoliberalism as a set of ideas for me was also a way of sort of putting pressure on, on the left and sort of, and sort of saying, you know, let's outline exactly what it is we want and let's do that by understanding our enemy uh, better. But what I found with the history of neoliberal thought and neoliberalism as an intellectual movement that we had, especially if one looks at that book, Road from Appellerin, for example, is it was still often divided up into this set of kind of national case studies. So one had the impression of this kind of hourglass model of diffusion, which is sort of a bunch of ideas collected and crystallized at Malpellerin and then sort of diffused out and were played out in different ways in different national spaces. And while I saw the kind of virtue in that, I also think that when you use that perspective of thinking about the famous example of David Harvey's Brief History of Neoliberalism, the cover shows Deng Xiaoping, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, and um, Augusto Pinochet, when one thinks about neoliberalism as just a sort of a mosaic of national projects that only then later gets kind of globalized in the IMF structural adjustment programs and the World Bank and the WTO, then I think you actually miss, you know, what I came to think of as a central problematic of neoliberalism, which is precisely the, the question of the world economy. So nations are not, are not the sort of chosen unit of analysis or neoliberals at all. I mean, quite the opposite. They saw the nation as like the, the privileged space for Keynesian social democratic economic policy. They always were attentive to the global. And that seemed to be a perspective, at least in the intellectual history, that was, that was absent. So that was the thing that compelled me to start writing the, the book. Wonderful. That's a perfect introduction to the book. Uh, and we're going to talk about a lot of those ideas. Um, but before we go into the nitty gritty of the book itself, uh, can you just briefly say what is your response to um, uh, the many people who say that the term neoliberal is too fuzzy or pejorative uh, to have any real use value? I mean, it, it of course is true that it has been used in both fuzzy and pejorative ways. So has the word socialism, so has the word communism, so has the word liberalism. <laughs> um, you know, I don't think that that makes all of those isms somehow no, no longer viable as, category, as categories of analysis. And I don't think anyone would disagree with that. I think that, that we have a very specific problem with neoliberalism, which is that it's used in basically three ways, I think. One is as a kind of a 
a period of time from about the 1970s to the present. So it's a way of kind of periodizing world history. You know, there's this, you often hear, we have entered an era of neoliberalism. And that's a kind of totalizing category, which kind of invites um, opposition or contradiction, because as soon as you say we are in an age of neoliberalism or in an era of neoliberalism, then you then people will just simply begin to produce like the reasons why in fact we aren't only in an era of neoliberalism um lingering social state etc etc there's a lot of ways that one could contradict that the other way it's used is as a kind of description of a particular economic logic or rationality right that has a kind of pervasive um presence in our everyday lives now so this idea that we like quote unquote we have all become entrepreneurs of ourselves now and we're constantly monitoring our 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 um capital and seeking to and seeking to maximize our you know social use our social um our the, the sh- sort of shares that we have as social actors and that is also for me um a very totalizing way of thinking about what neoliberalism is and one that is for a historian anyway a little bit too universalizing again i think you can simply come up with a lot of ways in which you know that logic doesn't dictate all of our daily lives either by pointing out specific people or looking at different parts of the world but the third way and that's the way that i use it is not to is to think of it as one set of of ideas and one model of regulating capitalism among other competing models of regulating capitalism and thinking about economics. So that way you are sort of freed from this overly high demand to make a grand universal statement that applies, you know, all over the world and since the 1970s everywhere, right? I mean, you can clearly see how this this ends up producing a rhetoric that isn't actually helpful politically and is probably not right empirically. Um, so when you say, as I and people like Dieter Pleva and Phil Murawski do, that when we say neoliberalism, we mean people who are associated with this discrete intellectual movement that is, revolves around the multi-tolerant society and has a birth date and an end, you know, not an end date, but a birth date <laughs> and a kind of a history of, its, a history of its own development, then you can begin a conversation on kind of more, much more solid ground. And I, for example, I just put something on Twitter today about a Politico article, a review of a recent book, which says, you know, there's no one calls themselves neoliberals. But 2016, the Adam Smith Institute, which is one of the sort of constellation of think tanks, um, started um, by neoliberals like Anthony Fisher and Ralph Harris. They, quote unquote, came out as neoliberals in 2016 in a blog post and have taken the label themselves as a self-descriptor. So the... When I think when you use it in this relatively limited sense, which is to me not just as a synonym for capitalism and not as a kind of umbrella term to describe history in the last 40 years, but as a specific variety of capitalism with its own genealogy, then I find most people are willing to go along with its use then when you when when it's been specified and it's been narrowed enough and it's made sort of um, its utility has been made clear through like these restraints. Then we're back on the ground of, I think, then talking about ideologies 
conservatism, uh, socialism, liberalism, which all have their history of internal sectarian splits and their sort of deviations. And they often produce things that don't look like each other, but we, you know, we wouldn't have historians of political thought if this wasn't a, um, you know, uh, an undertaking that is, that is possible to um, carry out. It's not an impossible task. It's a difficult task, but so is all history of political ideas. Mm. Great. And so your book tracks uh, some very specific neoliberals, um, uh, people that um, at different times in their lives were based in Geneva uh, can you just introduce us um, briefly to a few of these characters? Sure. Well, the book kind of moves through the 20th century, and the, the first book is dedicated to not Geneva, but really Vienna. And it's, it's dedicated to Vienna because Vienna experienced the end of empire um, earlier than a lot of other parts of the world in the 20th century. The end of the Habsburg Empire in 1918 was a real shock to to especially um, Viennese German-speaking Austrians who had the impression that, you know, they would have a career to be educated as kind of civil servants and administrators of this empire. And so the, the discipline of economics in Austria was always bound up with the discipline of law. In fact, you didn't really have a separate discipline of economics. And many of the people who we think of as neoliberals now or as I, who I call neoliberals came out of this very specific milieu, which combines kind of ideas of law, economics, and governance. And these three things are not really distinguished from one another. And they're kind of brought together under the rubric of, especially in German, order, right? Problems of order. So Mises is becomes this kind of nodal figure, and people have written about this before, of course, this kind of um, intellectual uh, patriarch of a, a group of scholars that includes Friedrich Hayek, who was about 20 years his junior, um, Gottfried Haberler, who became very influenced in international trade economics, Fritz Machloop, who became very influential in the history of knowledge. Um, these people all start sort of clustering around around Mises, and, and in the wake of the vanishing of the, the Habsburg Empire, they're sort of saying to themselves, you know, how do we produce order now that we have moved from the era of empires to the era of nations, as it seems? Um, the whole, all the kind of coordinates for for a governing ideology have been scrambled, um, and as it turns out, then this problem, which is which is kind of particular to Austria. You think about this time that in the interwar period, you still have empires. France has a large empire. Britain has a large empire. Um, the problem of empires is being of, of a world of nations is really being felt particularly acutely in a place like Austria, which is now too small to be self-sufficient. Um, it has no hope of building a large enough domestic market to kind of compensate the way that the United States or even Germany can at least consider. Um, so they become these kind of vanguard thinkers in the problem of, of a world that is simultaneously singular and interconnected economically, but extremely fragmented and segmented politically. This is, the, this is sort of like the central intellectual conundrum of neoliberal globalism, right, for the 20th century is like, there's this paradox where you have like this mosaic of nation states multiplying, multiplying, 
uh, over the course of the century. And even as they are becoming smaller and smaller units, you have an ever denser sort of overarching um, roof of, of uh, economic exchange and economic dependency. So they are thinking about that in Vienna. And then partially because Austria is one of the main countries that is being sort of intervened in by um, the League of Nations and the, the sort of the project of restoring Austria and reconstructing Austria is very much close to the heart of a lot of the people who are working on economic problems in Geneva at the League of Nations. This sort of traffic starts between Vienna and Geneva and Hayek, you know, and uh, is invited to to the League of Nations to talk about problems of statistics. Haberler is invited to the League of Nations to write his first sort of large-scale economic study for the League of Nations. And they start transposing this problem of kind of political fragmentation and economic unity from being a regional problem of Eastern Europe, East Central Europe, to a problem of the world. So the the book as it proceeds follows a series of, of actors over time who confront this sort of this similar um, scaling where regional problems are thought of as kind of laboratories or test cases for things that can be scaled up and vice versa, the way that uh, a region can be thought of as a macrocosm, a microcosm of the world economy, and then the world economy can be thought of as a kind of um, something replicable at different scales down to the the region and the nation. Wonderful. Yeah. One of the things that your book uh, does really brilliantly is uh, taking, you know, these seemingly highfalutin intellectuals uh, and then locating them in their everyday life or work, you know, at um, the League of Nations or um, at the International Chamber of Commerce, um, which is where uh, Frederick Hayek was uh, working at um, uh, in the latter half of the 20s. Uh, and, uh, and and you kind of see how these um, ideas, um, you know, belong to, but then also are shaping like very real political contexts. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so uh, you've already um, touched on sort of the first rupture um, uh, of the neoliberal century, as you uh, term it, um, which is the, uh, the First World War and the end of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, afterwards, you move into sort of the second rupture, um, which is the Great Depression, and so uh, here, uh, statistics are becoming extremely popular in economics and policymaking, um, but many of your neoliberals um, rejected this trust in numbers. Instead, they emphasized the political, social, and legal frameworks that you've already been alluding to that in- would encase the market. So what motivated this uh, epistemology, mm-hmm. and how did this understanding of the economy shape political projects? Right. Well, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the the partnership and the work that they did for and with uh, entities like the International Chamber of Commerce, because I feel like in the the discussion around neoliberalism, often there's this sort of false dichotomy where either neoliberalism is a you know an internally coherent intellectual system, or it is simply a set of alibis to serve the transnational capitalist class, right? Mm. This is often the way, for example, the difference between Phil Murawski's work and David Harvey's work is, yeah. is cast as sort of, you know, 
Murawski claims that it's about realizing a kind of unknowable economy a la Hayek and Arby says that it's simply a kind of a way of restoring class power and to be seduced by these discussions of neoliberal thought on its own terms is, you know, basically a waste of time or it's at least missing the, the main event. Um, and I have sympathy with both of those perspectives and I don't think that one really should be forced to choose. And I know you won't get the full story if you feel like you're forced to choose. And the example of the International Chamber of Commerce is is um, exactly apropos for that because the, the International Chamber of Commerce is, of course, simultaneously seeking to maximize, you know, the, the business opportunities for its um, members and to seek more markets for the most, uh, the, the, the most energetic and emergent forms of, of capital in the 1920s. But they're also doing that with, with not only a kind of, a kind of slightly cheap uh, moralizing rhetoric, which is to say this belief that, you know, what's good for the market is good for, is good for people at large, but they're also producing um, portraits and working models of what the world economy is. So the international chamber of commerce in the 1920s and the interwar period is, is one of the largest statistics gathering entities for this, kind of new field of economic statistics. Until the First World War, it was very hard to collect meaningful economic statistics because business privacy was absolute. Uh, Industrial secrecy made it so that one could never get sort of even what we would see of as now so sort of simple production numbers from individual companies. Um, So business statistics as it existed was mostly about cross-border trade. With the First World War, or total war as it's known, that barrier that that separated the world of private business and public government gets, at least for the period of the war, completely smashed down. So now the account books of the individual firms and corporations are really open to the the planners at the center of the the war-making state, right, or the, the militarized state. And this is true in, bo- in both, both sides of the conflict. It's true in, it's true in Germany, just as it's true in, the, in Great Britain and France. So what that does is it produces this whole new field of opportunity for policymaking. And the International Chamber of Commerce is one of the entities that saw the opportunity that was created here. And they drafted in intellectuals like like Hayek and Mises and Haberler, who was also working for the International Chamber of Commerce to sort of help produce a kind of portrait of the world economy that would best serve their interests. So you, you already have there implicitly the, emer- the emergence of a new epistemology, which is one about a, a new knowledge of the world economy. So it is an intellectual project in that sense, which is, of course, then being you know, indissolubly linked to a class project, which was about reproducing the power of, uh, you know, a certain privileged level of the business elite at the global level. So I think in the examples like that, you can kind of, you can begin to break that false dichotomy and that, that often gets reproduced in that kind of uh, 
especially in the sort of the leftist discussions of neoliberalism, where, where I think often people are opposed to intellectual history or history of ideas approach because they think that that's, that that's somehow against like the good materialist history where, 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 where truth really lies. And I just don't see why you'd have to make a choice. I mm. mean, it seems like much more intellectually exciting and potentially politically innovative to try to think these two things together. Um, but to return to your question then, what happened with, it's actually, it's actually quite a beautiful kind of dialectical moment because what happened with, with the economic statistics that started to emerge after the First World War is these things were designed basically for, this, for, the, for the purposes of the business community, right, originally. They had the idea of business cycle research and kind of um, creation of economic barometers, these were like subscription services that, that, that industry people would, and investors would subscribe to and they would get sent in the mail that would tell them, you know, it's a good time to invest in X or like the business climate is doing this or, or that. And it looked like it was, you know, in the, in the sort of the language of, of a Harvey, it was just like a tool of, you know, the capitalist class. But in Vienna, where Hayek and Mises kind of first get their kind of public visibility by creating an Austrian uh, business cycle research institute, a local one, a very interesting thing happens, which is the workers start to notice the utility of these economic statistics. So one of my favorite sources that I found, and I have a photograph of it somewhere, was a report in the, the Viennese workers newspaper that says, takes note of the new business cycle research institute that Hayek and Mises have um, founded. And they say in the course of a short editorial that this could actually be very useful for us because now we can know how to best plan our work stoppages and our strikes in ways that will hurt the business community the most, mm. that will hurt the bosses the most. And that part of the editorial is literally underlined three times in red pen <laughs> and like marked in the margins with a big red, with a thick red crayon in the, in the um, archival copy at the Business Cycle Research Institute where Mises and Hayek work. Amazing. Yeah. So I don't, I can't say for sure that that was, you know, the hand of Mises and Hayek that made the marking, but it could very well be. They didn't have a very large staff at that time. Um, wow. So that's, this is sort of, it helps explain this turn by which what seemed like a form of economic knowledge that would, that would, you know, that would serve the business community in a way that they felt would increase prosperity and increase stability and allow Austria to return to its, um, some semblance of its former, um, wealth ends up being kind of co-opted by this newly mobilized and newly politicized working class movement for their own purposes. And that same dynamic is what played out kind of writ large at the global level over the course of the twenties and, and, uh, really early 1930s where organizations like the International Labor Organization are very gung-ho on collecting, to, collecting statistics and are trying to get information on things like labor conditions, the level of unemployment, which was a very politically controversial thing to actually collect information on, as um, my colleague and friend Jamie Martin has written about recently in his dissertation. So what the neoliberals saw in the course of the 20s and 30s is numbers could be used to different political ends. The statistics 
um, did not have only kind of a one one function. And in fact, producing more knowledge about the global economy was having a counterproductive effect for them because it was giving an impression that if you could collect enough information, then you could plan the world economy. You could you could have at your fingertips all of the data necessary to um, produce a kind of either centrally controlled command economy or even a more decentralized kind of version of market socialism, which was being discussed a great deal um, in the interwar period. And in fact, what they what they needed to do was to kind of move away from the statistical project and um, move back to kind of first principles and think about the way that that in fact it was not just a question of you know feeding the kind of computer of of the world economy more and more information, but about sort of getting the programming right, right? getting the hardware, mm. getting the hardware um, in place, and getting and getting the right rules written into the way that the thing worked. So that's the transition I recount in the book how, about the kind of the loss of, of the faith in numbers that we see with the neoliberals and the move more to, to these more um, central and often legalistic ideas of, of first uh, operating principles in effect for the, for the world economy. Great. And uh, another common thread in your book is the centrality of property rights um, outside of one's own borders, um, or as you put it, Zenos rights. Um, so uh, you have a specific chapter that looks uh, at this, um, where you recount some of uh, the, the manifestos for the human right of capital, such as Philip Courtney's Economic Munich, um, the International Chamber of Commerce's International Code to Protect Foreign Investment, and then a former Nazi's uh, capitalist Magna Carta. Uh, can you share with our listeners um, some of these discussions about property rights? Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, first of all, that that notion of Zenos rights or that concept of Zenos rights is a is a coinage of mine, which I think helps describe well the kind of things that were being demanded, and it, it comes from the word Zenos, which I did not know until reading about it in the works of Hayek, the, uh, the Greek concept of the stranger friend. So Hayek speaks about the need to um, actually grant Zenoi or, you know, multiple Zenos um, more rights than um, natives. So it's uh, because the agents of exchange and the agents of trade are often people who are crossing borders. So the Zenos who is a stranger but is coming, you know, bearing goods for sale or bearing capital for investment is the, is the sort of the agent of um, economic integration and economic expansion in a good way as, as he sees it. So the Xenos is, is the sort of more important than the local, right? The, the, the globalizing actor is the, is the kind of hero of, of, of Hayek's um, telling of, of world history. One that he borrows, it seems slightly from Fernand Braudel, but one that he expands on the most in, in his final book, The Fatal Conceit. So the, this notion of the Xenos then gave me a way to kind of bundle what I saw as a pretty coherent set of interventions into the policy world by neoliberal intellectuals um, seeking to often either draft or adapt ways in which Zenos rights could be, you know, made formal, 
and, and what kind of enforcement structures could work to, to preserve the rights of property over borders in a world where national law has become ever more important, right? The, and, and the sovereignty of nation states becomes the kind of, you know, the principle upon which world order is, is founded after 1945. Um, despite the existence of international organizations like the UN, you know, there isn't really that much right of intervention. So um, it's a problem. And, and it's a problem that pe- people like Philip Courtney, who you named, and others get involved with. Ludwig Erhardt ends up writing in. So Ludwig Erhardt was the, the economics minister in West Germany, a friend of Hayek and Rupka's, a member of the Montpellerin Society, and later the chancellor of West Germany, um, adds to an investment agreement with Pakistan between Pakistan and West Germany, the first, um, uh, the first, what was called a bilateral bilateral investment clause. So, saying that if the land, if the property in Pakistan is appropriated by any or or lost by any means in Pakistan, then the Pakistani government is forced to compensate um, the German investor. So it's a way of making the state a kind of a guarantor for the sanctity of, of private property. And that is really the principle according to which um, a great deal of international investment law works. And a lot of people have written about this. I'm not the first person to write about it. What, what people have, have mostly emphasized, and I think that's accurate, is the continuities between the post-imperial, the post-colonial model of international investment law and the imperial and properly colonial model of investment law, in which there were often similar arrangements where, where um, you know, the, the, the rights of the property owner were secured beyond their own domicile through either written or unwritten uh, codes of law. So in some ways, we can see this as like a continuation of, of imperial property protection, even in the era after empire. Um, and then sometimes people are being quite explicit about that. The specific examples are many and have been written about by other people in sort of book length form. For example, the her, the former Nazi you referred to is is the banker Hermann Ops ABS, who was um, one of the strongest advocates of these Zenos rights, and ended up writing something called the Abs Shot Cross draft convention that was used and has has been used since the 1960s to to precisely protect one's property when it's outside of a country of one's own domicile and often that's done through and this is where we get back to the the international chamber of commerce often that's done through third-party arbitration courts so if say somehow your property in the other country is is uh, lost or expropriated or sometimes regulations change in such a way so that its value declines precipitously, it depends on the agreement you have, then that case will be uh, litigated often at this third-party arbitration court. Often the International Chamber of Commerce itself offers the service of or, or becomes the site for the arbitration of these claims between between the investor and the and the, um, the country that was the site of investment. So it all gets pretty arcane. And, and, um, and as I said, there's been this sort of reams and reams of, of literature written on this. 
But what was most striking for me was was how much this meant to some of the the neoliberal intellectuals that that I was following in my story. So we had this moment where after 1945, you think that our, our sort of narrative would suggest that the biggest problem of the moment after 1945 is the problem of, you know, the stateless person, the displaced person, the refugee, the migrant, you know, whether it's Germans um, being expelled from Eastern Europe or soon after 1945, you know, Palestinians being rejected from their land and, in, in Palestine, um, it's a time of great human disruption. And it's fascinating for me to look at the discussions of neoliberals of that period and to see almost no interest in that problem of human migration or mobility or disruption and a great deal of concern about how to secure the rights of capital to, um, you know, to maintain its, uh, its integrity regardless of the change of administration um, in the places where it's invested. So there's a big fear about, or there's a big concern with, for example, the expropriation of German funds as it was being held in foreign accounts. And in general, this need to kind of preserve the separation between the world of states and the world of property becomes really a, um, this central kind of motivating project of the, of the, of the neoliberal movement in the in the years after 1945. Mm. Yeah, uh, something that I was so struck by reading your book was um, just yeah how important empire and uh, decolonization were um, to neoliberalism, mm-hmm. uh, and that's something that I think sometimes gets overlooked in in the literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, just moving ahead a little bit to the third rupture, um, which uh, you characterize as sort of the um, the revolt of the global south, um, the increasing political demands, increasing power that they had. Uh, and um, this is embodied in the uh, new international economic order. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also sort of a callback to our earlier discussion. Um, this is uh, a lot of these projects are aided by new computerized modeling. And so uh, can you say something about why this, uh, you know, so-called revolt of the global South mattered to these neoliberals? Um, like what exactly did it threaten? Yeah. I mean, I think that this points to, I think, a different methodological approach that I took with the book too, and, and also a different approach to the question of neoliberalism. I think that, one of, for me, the less productive ways of, of thinking about or asking the question what neoliberalism is, is to think that it is a set of kind of ready-made solutions or a kind of, you know, 10-point list of, of ways to destroy the welfare state, a kind of, you know, <laughs> a, a one-size-fits-all panacea rostrum. And, and, you know, and this is, of course, there's some, there's some credibility to this with you think about the sort of points on on John Williamson's famous Washington consensus of you know, deregulation, financialization, liberalization, privatization. I mean, these things did take place and it, and it can be empirically accurate to describe, you know, neoliberal projects being rolled out according to these 10 point lists. But I think that especially in a, in a time like the sort of interregnum period that we're in right now, that's not the most productive way to kind of try to locate ourselves in, in the, 
in the terrain of political you know possibilities and dangers i think that i think that if you think about neoliberalism as not only a set of solutions but also a set of problems then you can sort of conclude better what alternative problems or solutions to those problems you might you might have so i think that neoliberalism is above all you know above all it's the problem of of balancing capitalism with democracy mm. you know, the big story of the 20th century for neoliberalism that keeps on producing problems is is the um, is the expand i mean the expansion of of universal suffrage which produces an, an empowerment of of everyday populations at a mass level that always threatens to throw the functioning of the capitalist economy off of its tracks. At the same time, you know, most neoliberals also see that element of, of, of uh, popular sovereignty and democracy is not only something that is ineradicable now that it's been granted, it's, it's very hard to take away, but also that it, it is somehow necessary for the production, for the ex, for, you know, what Hayek sees as the kind of ways that, that competition is a discovery procedure, you know, that happens in the marketplace, but it also happens in the political, the realm of political ideas and political models. So, so for neoliberals, it's, it's of the more sort of traditional Hayekian sense. It's not just a, a for, I don't see it as simply a project of, you know, trying to eliminate democracy. I think it's a problem of balancing and figuring out how these two things can work together, democracy and capitalism. And the same way Keynesianism is really a problem of how to balance democracy and capitalism. Hmm. You know, how much needs to be granted to, to the, the people to prevent a revolution? You know, that's the question that both Keynes and Hayek were asking. You know, that is where they, they actually come together. Um, and what decolonization does from the point of view of a neoliberal is it just takes the problem of mass suffrage, of universal suffrage and democracy and, and globalizes it, right? So now we have not only the problem of, you know, what will enfranchised European populations and North American populations do, but what will enfranchised populations in post-colonial Uganda and post-colonial um, Papua New Guinea you know what kind of decisions will be made in places that are often important for the for the world economy, whether as sources of raw material or sources of labor or whatever. So you get decolonization. I think is a, is a central development for the for the neoliberal problematic because it globalizes the. On the one hand, it globalizes mass suffrage and at least makes nominally the question the the model of democracy you know more established globally than it had ever been before. And secondly, the way that decolonization happens and the way that global governance happens, you think about the United Nations as the, as the, the sort of the hallmark of post-45 international institutions, is it gives this impression of one nation, one vote as the kind of counterpart to one person, one vote. So democracy is not only being practiced in, in, in individual nations, but also it would seem uh, between individual nations. And, and from the point of view of, of a Hayek or a Rupka or any of the people in my book, really, um, 
this then becomes really a problem because if, if let's say Botswana has one, has one vote in the general assembly and Syria has one vote in the general assembly and, and the United States only has one vote in the general assembly, then, then the effect will be, you know, catastrophic because you've had a, a complete delinking of kind of economic power from political power and political power now is being determined on a totally different basis than um, economics. So whereas the IMF, for example, uses a quota system to see how much any votes you get, you know, how much of world trade are you responsible for that? That means how much that determines what your voting is, your voting power is within the IMF. Something like the UN is, is quite different and it, and it, it, for them, it becomes a kind of like a travesty of the democratic principle or a kind of grotesque, you know, um, uh, reductio ad absurdum of the, of the democratic principle because it sort of grants um, it grants units equal status regardless of past performance or regardless of wealth and size. And where they see this playing out, as I said, most most potentially damagingly is is in the United Nations and the central drama then becomes in the 1970s, the fight over what was called the new international economic order, which passes the general assembly by a vote uh, in 1974 and makes, you know, what are, you know, to this day, extremely, well, especially now, um, extremely radical demands for um, the right for nations to expropriate foreign owned property with compensation of their own decision. Um, it calls for reparations in part for the practice of colonialism and the exploitation of imperialism. It calls for a bunch of other things, commodity stabilization funds, commodity cartels on the, on the model of OPEC. And it's really a transformative maximalist kind of platform that a number of historians in recent years have kind of rediscovered and returned to not in most cases because they feel like we can just sort of, you know, dust it off and, and bring it back into contemporary policy debates. But just to kind of, to kind of tap back into the utopian imagination of that moment. And just to sort of say, this is the 1970s. This is not the 1770s. This is, <laughs> this is in, in most people's lifetime, right? If you're like a tenured professor, you were probably alive when this stuff was happening. If you're a grad student, your parents are probably alive. Um, so how can it be that something so enormous was you know, possible, even as a rhetorical statement, even as a fantastical statement, even just at the level of political possi- you know, thought and, and creativity, um, when now we all feel like we've been kind of blackmailed down to like the smaller, smaller and smaller demands for social justice, let alone climate justice or any transformative policy that would actually save us in the long term. But there's been, there's been this, this desire, I think an understandable desire to kind of um, try to tap that reservoir of utopianism uh, and filter it through the present and just see what we, what we can possibly, you know, come out with when we kind of combine that spirit with the, with the power, with the problems of the present. And there are a million critiques of that move that move back to the 70s and NIO, and some of them I agree with and some of them I don't. What I was interested in, though, in the book was 
the opposition to the NIEO. So, and more than anything, you know, if it was so, the question is, if it was so ridiculous and utopian and fantastical, and if it was just this paper project of, you know, people sitting in the UN who all have like their comfortable sinecures and their drivers and they're like the elite of the elite in their own post-colonial nations anyway, if it is just this kind of like pipe dream, then why were big businesses and, and industrialized nations so frightened by it? Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, the first answer is obviously the OPEC oil embargo, it, which was in a way kind of like the signal act of what became the new international economic order, which produced the oil crisis in 1973, 74, or at least again, million histories on this, but at least like, um, amplified the oil crisis of that moment. But there are other ways, as I discovered, where the people who, like the neoliberals in my book who were sort of always trying to sort of describe a deep structure, the deep logic of a particular moment of world capitalist ideology, they, what they saw was a kind of a concatenation of a bunch of other developments sort of coming together in something like the NIEO. You mentioned the computerized model question. So this this is a case with the NIEO where they thought that the kind of hubris of a planner like Otto Neurath in 1920s Vienna, who said like, we've got a lot of information, we've got a bunch of smart people and we've got physicists and mathemat- mathematicians and we have a new, we have a new state. We have a socialist, uh, we have a socialist capital in Vienna. Like we're smart. We can just put our minds together and we can basically create uh, a planned economy here. And this ends up being the sort of formative moment where Mises says, no, we need prices. It needs to be decentralized knowledge, et cetera. But that idea of planning at a local level in the Keynesian state that emerges after 1945 with national income accounting, it sort of does happen where you have national economic statistics and people say like, look, we can know enough to predict at least within a band of um, you know, uncertainty what's going to happen in the coming the coming year and the coming decade. So let's plan for it. Let's produce targets. Let's produce quotas. Let's subsidize and um, tax based on this insight into the economy. The 1970s with the new international economic order, the, the, the neoliberals like Hayek are just like, oh my God, this is something that's stalked, you know, come right out of their nightmares, which is that thing that started in 1920s Vienna and was then put into place with the Keynesian post-war welfare state is now literally going global. So the welfare state is going to become a welfare world. And that term was being used by actors at the time like Julius Nyerere. So it seemed to be, for them, it was the um, the largest scale to date version of an enchaining of kind of a belief in social, scientific, economic, statistical knowledge added to a um, demand for end state equality and social justice that could kind of bring together a coalition of mainstream left-leaning economists, technologically enabled computer scientists, and the demands of post-colonial leaders to be to to you know create this kind of juggernaut that they feared would just smash the world economy, like potentially permanently. And so they were freaked out and they um, helped out people. You know, we think about what was happening with the Heritage Foundation and, you know, helping to come up with arguments 
to to let's say reverse the position that had previously been held on questions like copyrights and patents to sort of say like intellectual property rights are really important actually we need a new kind of international institution that will protect those that becomes the wto actually we've been giving these global south countries too much leash with the all the exceptions that they were able to get from trade law and the GATT. So we need a more uniform system and that also becomes the WTO. So you get, the, you get a, in, within a pretty short period of time, a counter mobilization to the new international economic order in the creation of the WTO in 1995. So it's, it's a gap of 20 years, but if you follow it through, I don't think there's any way to see it as the WTO is anything but a kind of, a medium-term um, response to the radical demands of the NIO, which get kind of you know shut down permanently through a series of things that happened in those intervening two decades. But I think as a kind of shorthand, you can see um, the the dream of a kind of isonomy or the same law, a same international economic law that will circle the globe as a kind of refutation of the sort of historically informed um, demands for substantive equality that had animated the NIEO. And now, I mean, of course, it's, it's, it's very hard to imagine. Again, this is only 40 years ago, but the idea that, you know, a coalition of global South nations would be able to make demands that would strike fear in the hearts of, of industry leaders and, and diplomats at the highest level and, in the global north is just absurd, right? I mean, it's not, or is it? I don't know. I mean, like the, mm-hmm. the river, you know, now you think of, like, I mean, you think about if China really started to cre- create some kind of a coalition rather than simply investing in sub-Saharan Africa, but tried to sort of do some kind of rhetorical work of, you know, neo-Maoism. Um, <laughs> it's interesting to think. I mean, I think that everything is up for grabs right now. So I don't want to make any statements that'll be you know obviously wrong in six months but mm-hmm. but but i think that 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 vision of of sort of a techno egalitarianism which in some ways the nio was if you if you put the club of rome work being done with with um system theory um into the when you see how many there in fact left-wing economists were quite excited about the possibilities of global planning Vasily Leontief, um, Nobel Prize winner, was right on board with this stuff, as, as was Jan Tinbergen, Nobel Prize winning economist, um, the founder, in a way, of national income accounting. I mean, this history is, I, I find, pers- personally, like, essential, because in the, in the discussion around neoliberalism, often I think there's a two- easy conflation of neoliberalism with just the discipline of economics mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or with something that is sometimes called economism. And I think that to say, well, what is neoliberalism? Well, it's, it's the way that economics looks at the world and it's privileging economic um, indicators above all other forms of human experience. That is just a far too easy set of equivalences. I mean, first of all, it, it, it discounts the fact that you know, economics has often been in the service of some form of, of redistributive equality from its sort of market socialist side to its Keynesian side. And it also discounts the fact that often, I mean, social democratic demands and, and demands for equality are made in economic terms. 
um, and that's not a crime, right? I find that to put neoliberalism, economics, and economism in one chain and then throw the, all three of those away, I, I don't know what's left. I mean, that sort of post-materialist demands that, um, that I think end up, you know, they're at least difficult to phrase in ways that would be sort of animating the, the, the desires of a lot of, you know, potential adherence to such a movement or voters for such a political party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I th- yeah, I think that your book shows that um, it's it's not just about economics or economists. Um, it's much deeper. And and from Fomorowski's work, you know, we know that uh, a, a lot of economists are definitely not neoliberal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you were just gesturing towards the present moment and sort of like looking at the present moment, um, uh, you know, well, through specifically the, the 1970s lens. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was I wanted to ask you another question. This is actually a question I've never asked my guests. So I'm, uh, I'm curious to see what your response will be. But I was just, I was hoping you could reflect on the the splash that your book has made, and particularly like like what you've thought of the different um, book reviews um, uh, that have so far come out. Um, is there anything that's like surprised you, or do 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 you have a sense of why um, you know this book about the history of ideas um, uh, is mattering to so many people right now? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a it's a it's an incredibly strange moment that we're in right now, right? I mean. It's one that I think that very few people would have predicted two years ago, three, I should say three years ago. And I know I didn't predict when I started writing this book or even really when I finished writing the book. I mean, I'd substantively finished it in January of 2016. So before Brexit, before Trump. Um, And there, you know, it's my attitude of kind of criticizing depoliticization, which is effectively, you know, the subtext of the book, which is to say that, you know, the neoliberal project has been about um, insulating certain economic processes from democratic decision-making in ways that tends to, you know, actually reproduce inequality and reproduce like entrenched power interests against any, any attempts to radically transform them or reform them. Um, that didn't seem to be a very controversial kind of a statement to make at the time. But what we've seen since 2016 is, is a repoliticization of things that had long been considered depoliticized. So the, the horizon of political rhetoric in the, since the 19, mid-1990s in, in the United States, for example, has been to say things like, you know, the trade agreements were... <laughs> were good things, that free trade was a kind of a core principle, that the world economy and globalization just simply forced the hand of national policymakers in ways that it would be, you know, not only nostalgic, but also like counterproductive to try to resist, right? The kind of the era of Clinton, Gerhard Schröder in Germany, Tony Blair in the UK had just led to this supposedly uh, pragmatic, technically informed approach to, you know, managing nation states like economies um, with uh, a, a hard limit on any possibilities for um, reconfiguring global economic relations or much less sort of restoring or growing social services such as they exist to that moment. Um, with Trump and Brexit now, we see that sort of everything is up for grabs. 
And in fact, <laughs> nothing is even close to permanent. None of these arrangements are close to permanent. With the and the question now becomes, you know, not just what is it that we're criticizing, but what is it that we actually want? Um, and that, for me, has actually been one of the better critiques that I've received from the book, which is from a person who I think would call himself a neoliberal. He's a member of the Malpelerin Society. And he read the book as basically a positive description of the neoliberal tradition. Mm. This is not the first, he's not the only one to do so. I mean, the book has been pretty warmly received by Malpelerin Society intellectuals, including the current president of the Malpelerin Society, who I've had, wow. had some emails with. And um, sees me as someone who knows the material well, describes it, you know, without um, resorting resorting to you know ex- exaggeration or fabrication, um, and simply has a different normative conclusion than the one that he has. So you know, I say you know to to uh, you know hive off economic decisions to insulated this and that and blah 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 and that, you know creating it, using supranational institutions to enforce capital rights and, and free trade over all other goals. I see that as a negative thing, either implicitly and often explicitly. And he sees it as a positive thing. And so and Deirdre McCloskey is another example. She gave the book a very good review and she, she ended by saying something like, you know, if we want to know what system has made us rich and free, then we should pay close attention mm. to this book, which was far from my intention when writing it. But I think that it it does force the question, which is, you know, what is it exactly that I'm proposing as as an alternative, or what, and you know, by extension, what are critics of neoliberalism proposing as an alternative? Because we're watching one alternative unfold on the ground right now in real time, which is the kind of um, Trump's attitude towards trade policy is is you know quite striking, and although it may indeed lead to just a sort of a renegotiation and a greater economic interdependence with the reformed NAFTA and WTO agreement, we don't know, but there is a kind of a willingness to cross that border between sovereignty and property that we haven't seen in a while. The European project, you know, does have a reverse direction as we're discovering, you know, we didn't know that you could actually start dissolving the EU. That was always seen as, as something that was just simply, you know, crossed out as a possible future. But, well, here we go. Something's happening there. I mean, it is happening in Britain. It's happening in ways that, that people on the left would, you know, and I too am like rightfully like horrified by. But then if we've criticized neoliberalism and we've criticized sort of right-wing anti-integrationism or sovereignism, then the 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 need for a kind of a renovation of the leftist alternative is 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 extremely pressing right and um and there i think especially in europe but in the united states too the question of of how a i mean how a kind of a a left alternative to populism could be articulated is often revolving centrally around the question of how one thinks about um human mobility and the question of, of immigration in the 21st century, the way that the left is currently trying to renovate itself in, in Germany is by uh, giving into some of the anti-immigrant rhetoric of the far right and 
and and claiming that it's not racist or xenophobic, but that um, but that immigrants depress jobs and refugees are a more are a drain on the social state, and they will lead to an acceleration of neoliberalization if we can if Germany continues to allow people to you know enter um, without regulation. Of course, there is regulation, but this is this is this is the sort of frame that's being produced right now as an attempt to create a left populist alternative in Germany is that we need to turn, we need to sort of buy into parts of the anti-migrant rhetoric in order to save a kind of a core of the welfare state for those who are already here. Um, and we don't know what, of course, uh, a Bernie administration would do about immigration. Um, but what we do know, I think, is that, you know, if we surrender that question to the right, then we've really kind of lost the whole mm-hmm. game. I mean, I think that they've at the core of, of what it means to be um, a leftist alternative. And I think that the idea of a alter globalization, right, a kind of a left version of globalization is, 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 again, more pressing than ever. But we're all so on the defensive right now that I think it hasn't felt like much time to actually think about what that might look like. Um, but that... Is, you know, is clearly necessary. And I think that, I think that my book, I hope kind of leaves open, it, it leaves open what at least one recent reviewer talked about as kind of the possibilities of, of, of a positive leftist internationalism, which did not, which saw the utility of, of the nation state as a kind of a space of solidarity and organizing without that being premised on a notion of ethnic exclusion the basis of the demos, right? Mm-hmm. So I think, so I think that, so I, I mean, that's, that's a lot to ask from, you know, what is just a book of history, but I think it's more like the conversations that have been happening have been very heartening for me because it feels like, and this is, the, this is, this is really, um, I think the core of it is it, at a time when we're feeling pressured more and more to follow kind of moment to moment developments in, in the, in the political scandals that are unfolding all around us, and we, you know, we wake up and we, we have to check the news to see like what transformed about like political culture in the United States. Um, I think it's at that time that people really feel a sense of relief to think in terms of decades or even centuries, right? I think this idea of being able to take a pause from the relentless moment to moment maelstrom of, of like data points um, means that history is kind of more important now than ever, I think. Well, I mean, as a, an aspiring historian, I, I have to agree uh, legally or contractually. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, no, I, I think it's, it's really safe to say that um, your book has invigorated a lot of these debates. And uh, yeah, I think the, the, the discussions um, that we've been seeing are all a testament to it. And I know I've kept you for a very long time. Um, can you just provide a, a, a little sense about what you're working on right now for our listeners? Sure. Um, I mean, it ties directly into what we were just talking about. So one of the interesting things that happened sort of after the period that I talk about in the book, the book really ends with the creation of the WTO in 1995. And then, I mean, really ends with the, the protest against the WTO in 1999 which was sort of the first major legitimacy crisis for that organization that hasn't really recovered from. Um, at the late, in the late nineties, you know, it's a, a time that I was already kind of like cognizant. I was in college. 
um, it seemed that the critique of globalization was coming mostly from the left. But what, interestingly enough, I think what we're witnessing now is the most effective globaliz- uh, critique of globalization has actually come from the right. And interestingly enough, some of that critique has come from within the neoliberal movement itself. And that's, that's actually the most kind of unexpected twist. So at the moment of the creation of the European Union, 1992, the creation of the WTO, the kind of the more proactive face that the, the World Bank and IMF began to show in the 80s and 90s, there was a kind of a cohort within the neoliberal movement that felt that this was a wrong turn, that basically that all this was doing was scaling up socialism and the EU would eventually just become what, just another bureaucracy and it would become a kind of a transfer union. And in fact, you know, this would be a more sclerotic way of organizing the world economy than individual nation states. So you get a kind of anti-integrationist uh, wing within the neoliberal movement, um, one of which founded something called the Bruges Group, which, which then became connected to something called the Center for the New Europe, the Brussels think tank, um, the Bruges Group now, which was started by Ralph Harris, Paul uh, Pellerin Society president and secretary. Now, if you look on its website, it says um, providing, you know, what does it say? Something like provided the intellectual foundations for Brexit. So there's a way that, act, and you can see this all the time if you, if, you, if you look at the way that the pro-Brexit conservatives are defending Brexit, it's that it's not about isolationism and it's not about withdrawing from the world economy. Often it's a pivot from the continental orientation of Britain to a global one, right? Often there's this notion that the WTO will simply set in, step in where the EU had failed. So at the very moment when it, people were declaring that the neoliberal, you know, the neoliberal movement had had its greatest successes in the nineties, NAFTA, EU, WTO, some of these neoliberals themselves were starting to get very uneasy about the way that integration was happening. And there was a kind of a restoration of the idea that the nation was a, was a better vehicle than a kind of international institution. So the people in the beginning of the Austrian Freedom Party, um, the people who are now started the Alternative for Germany Party in Germany, these are people who are coming often out of the kind of ordo-liberal and neoliberal tradition. And they're, they're really doing a critique of neoliberal globalism from within. You also get there the more radical forms of anarcho-capitalism that bleed into the, the new, uh, the alt-right. So Murray Rothbard and his protege, um, Hans Hermann Hoppe, are you know figures who are now seen as the kind of good libertarians, quote unquote, for the alt right, and that's partially because they rejected supranational institutions. They rejected the idea that global economic governance was possible, and they instead argued for movements of secession, and if not, you know, the outright um, removal from democratic communities altogether. So there's this interesting range of kind of actually anti-globalists that emerged from the 1990s discussions on the right that managed to combine kind of a fidelity to free market principles with an idea that um, that the unit within which the market needs to be organized was not actually the supranational, but a return to the national or perhaps something even smaller. So this kind of neoliberal secessionism is something that I'm trying to figure out now and to figure out 
the links between that and the so-called populist explosion, which in many cases I think is a kind of schism within neoliberalism rather than a kind of opposition to it. Mm. Well, I really can't wait to read that. Uh, I want to thank you again for speaking with me today. It's been a really productive discussion for me and I, I hope for our listeners. You've all been listening to New Books in Intellectual History. 